Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. 30 years ago, Iris's magnum opus, Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, was published. And to mark the occasion, the Iris Murdoch podcast will be producing four episodes over the next few months to explore what is generally considered both her most important work of philosophy and also, I think, her most underrated. In today's first episode, we're going to be exploring the background to the work discussing its development from the Gifford Lectures a decade prior to publication, and asking what makes it a milestone in late 20th century British philosophy, and thinking a little bit about why it hasn't been fully recognised as such. And I'm joined by three guests, each experts in the field, to discuss it. Firstly, we're joined by Gillian Dooley. Hello, Gillian. Hello, hello. Gillian is an honorary senior research fellow in English at Flinders University, Australia. She was the founding general editor of the Flinders Humanities Research Centre's electronic journal, Transnational Literature from 2008 to 2018, and was founding co-editor of Writers in Conversation 2014 to 2020. She has published three monographs, several scholarly editions, and more than a hundred journal articles and book chapters, including the co-edited Reading Iris Murdoch's Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. So, you know, she had to be here for this. And her latest work, Listening to Iris Murdoch, Music, Sounds and Silences will be published in the Iris Murdoch Today series with Palgrave Macmillan in July later this year. So Gillian, thanks for coming on again. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, glad to be here. We're also joined by Nora Hammerleinen. Hello, Nora. Hello. Nora is a Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Ethics as Study in Human Value at the University of Pardubice in the Czech Republic. And as well as being the author of Literature and Moral Theory and Descriptive Ethics, What Does Moral Philosophy Know About Morality? She's also the co-editor of Reading Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals with Gillian. So again, really important that Nora's here and I'm, I'm so grateful that she can be with us. And she's currently working on two interrelated projects. Firstly, completing a monograph called The Making of the Good Person, Moral Philosophy, Self-Help and Technologies of the Self, where she looks at some discussions on self-transformation and self-development in philosophy and popular culture. And she's also working on a long-term project on moral change, specifically the change and renegotiation of moral frameworks and axioms. And finally, I'm joined by um, the Deputy Director of the Iris Murdoch Research Centre and a regular on the podcast, Francis White. Hello, Francis. Hello. Um, we, we all know Frances, she's been on uh, several times before and it's always a delight to have her with us. Um, and as, as, as you may well know, she's published widely on Murdoch, including the biography Becoming Iris Murdoch in 2014. She's also the co-editor of the Iris Murdoch Today series with uh, Palgrave, the editor of the Iris Murdoch Review. And one of her current projects is editing Iris Murdoch and the Literary Imagination, which will be out later this year. Welcome to you all. Uh, Francis, I think it may, may be best to start with you. Obviously, um, all three of you uh, wrote some wonderful uh, work for uh, the uh, Reading Iris Murdoch's Metaphysics, A Guide to Morals, which came out, I think, in 2019. I think it was 2019, just in time for the centenary. And Francis, you wrote a wonderful um, first essay in that collection on the background to the work and to the Gifford Lectures and the production of MGM. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly, Miles. Um, this amazing book, which is the biggest of all Murdoch's philosophical works in terms of just size, although maybe not in terms of ideas, that's a separate matter, 
actually sprang from the Gifford Lectures, which are given in Edinburgh in Scotland by a different person who's invited each year, and hardly ever a woman. In 1972, Hannah Arendt was invited to give them, and Murdoch was actually the second woman ever invited to give them. And previous people who'd given them included Gabrielle Marceau, who she read in French, Donald McKinnon, her tutor, who she looked up to very greatly. So I would have expected that she would have been very thrilled and very excited by this invitation and this prospect of this prestigious lectureship. Far from it. On the 25th of June, 1978, she writes in her journal, just asked to give Gifford lectures rain. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> that's all you get. No enthusiasm. And then throughout the journals, and, and, well, really throughout the journals, what you get is that seeing her thinking about what she's going to put into them. So in her journals, if she's got an idea for a novel, you get a little N in the left-hand margin. If it's for a play, you get a little PL, a poem, you get a PO. And you start to find this symbol G. And that's where she's thinking about things she wants to put into her Gifford lectures because her journals are kind of working notebooks. She does record things that happen during the day in nature and friends and things, but also her thoughts and her reading. So that's interesting to see this little G prop up and see what she's thinking of including. But in the letters to friends, you get more and more of, oh, no, I'm writing these awful lectures and they're no good. I don't want to go. And then when she was supposed to give them, John Bailey actually broke his ankle and she wouldn't leave him. So it got postponed another six months until the autumn of that year in 82. And she went off to Scotland, very disconsolate, longing for it to be over, complaining to all and sundry. And they didn't go down very well at all. Um, she, I think it would be fair to say that she wasn't a good lecturer at all. She gave the Romans lectures in Oxford as well, which became The Fire and the Sun. And that is an excellent book, but apparently they were not good lectures. I don't think she had the capacity for holding an audience in, um, in an hour long section like that. And her thoughts are so diffuse, as we'll come on to see, that it's difficult to see how a, a solid lecture would actually have a shape that would make immediate sense to an audience that wasn't expecting it to be like this. So maybe she was right to have some doubts, but anyway, she didn't relish the experience. And then the Gifford lecture material took over really a lot of her time for the next 10 years as she wrote up the material in a different way to make Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals to be published. And it's interesting to see how she changes her audience. The audience she was expecting for the actual lectures themselves was academic, was philosophical, theological, and she approached it at one level. For the book, she wants to engage the general reader. She wants to engage people who don't have a background in philosophy or theology, but intelligent people, obviously, and reading people and thinking people but just people without any expertise who are thinking about what it's like to be alive, what we make of this life, what we make of morality, what we make of ethics, what we make of art, of politics, of everything. And she does this by changing the tone. And in the book itself, the tone is very confiding. There is a lot of we and us. And she aligns herself alongside the reader so that we're with her in this very different from the lectures. And she also changes the endings. She made two drafts of the lectures and the endings were very different to each. But then when she published the book, she chose in this strange and enigmatic way to end it with Psalm 139, quite, quite different from either of the other endings. So there were many, many changes. And it's fascinating to see the draft of the lectures in the archive. It's the closest I've ever been to watching somebody thinking. She talks about how 
difficult thinking is, how painful thinking is. A lot of her philosopher characters in her novels, that their brains hurt, they think or they scream. And you can actually see her thinking in through these drafts and through these notebooks. It's quite fascinating. So it's very, very different indeed. And, but one thing that I will say, which is to do with the essay, because I wrote this particular book about metaphysics as a guide to morals. I don't know whether she was conscious of this, which may not have been. There is what I've called a subliminal lexicon. Lexicon just being a choice of words, the word list. And subliminal just being under the surface of the consciousness. Now, whether it was under the surface of her consciousness, I'm not sure, but certainly the first few times I read it, it was under mine. And there's words that she uses like perfectly persuasive. And there's kind of a sense of, well, we all know, don't we? And it's quite obvious that, and of course, and she says these things, and when you see it threaded through the text, you don't notice it to begin with, but it's actually drawing you in. It's quite um, proselytizing, really. It's, it's very much trying to persuade you of her opinion that she's right about things. For various people, there's been some marvelous accounts of, of the book by various scholars who are actual philosophers, which I'm not, but they pointed out things like the patterning of the repetition and the reiteration, and this particular voice and tone which has a sort of contrived informality as if it was personal private musings. And somebody most beautifully described it, this book as a guide for a spiritual journey. It does have a spiritual element in it. It's um, got a surprising amount of religious consciousness and discussion for a late 20th century work of philosophy. So it's very much a border crossing book. It crosses between scholarship, which is undoubtedly amazingly well read, and she has thought deeply about these philosophers and she knows it backwards. But there's a cross then towards the sort of exhortation to the reader, oh, please, you know, take this seriously, it's important to our lives. But for Murdoch, um, moral philosophy had to be inhabited, as she famously said. And really, if it wasn't part of your life, it wasn't worth thinking about. She didn't believe in just an abstruse discussion for the sake of it. It mattered to her very, very much. And it's come to matter to me very much over my life. I've had this book half my life now. And I'm not a philosopher, I'd say that uh, at the outset at all. So it's a, it's a great mystery to me, this book. And I keep reading it and going back to it and having another little nibble. And there are bits that I love, and particular vignettes that are wonderful, and there are insights. And every time I reread it, I get something different. But I'd say don't be frightened of it. Just pick up what you can. Skim past things that don't mean anything to you, and then linger on a passage that does mean something to you. There was a particular passage that um, came to mean a lot to me, which I'll talk about perhaps later, when I started writing my own PhD thesis on remorse, because I found it here as well as in the novels, which fascinated me. So it's a, it's a book to be um, come back to over and over again, I think. And obviously philosophers will get a lot more out of it than the, the likes of Gideon and I, who do our best with our literary backgrounds. But that's probably enough for you to have as a background for the moment. Yes, thank you, Francis. As you say, it's a, it's a work to come back to time and time again. And it, it reveals itself in layers, I think. There's so much going on here. Um, and you can dip in. Um, and yet to try and gather the whole thing together as a whole, it's, it's so wide ranging, it, it's quite difficult. But perhaps Nora can help us to do that. Nora, could you give us a little bit of an introduction to the overall scheme of the whole work and talk a little bit about what it encompasses? Yeah, uh, it's, it's, that's a really interesting question, because I, when I was preparing for this podcast, I was, well, what does it, is it about? I don't remember. And, and, and I think this is a, it is about very many things. And, and, um, 
and, and we might actually during over a lifetime of reading it or over a career of coming back to it, we might actually change our minds about this. But I, I think it's very much about the connection between um, moral philosophy and cultural philosophy or moral philosophy and understanding one's presence, understanding one's time, understanding the kind of intellectual atmosphere where one is uh, and what it means. And I think that the metaphysics in the title is very much, has very much to do about, with this cultural philosophy aspect, because it's not about, I mean, Murdoch belongs to a generation of philosophers who were, were very doubtful about the possibility of making, a, creating a metaphysical system. And, and it wasn't sort of, um, the, the idea that the time of metaphysical systems is in the past and now we we something new is is going to happen in relation to this issue and and one possibility was of course to to do um, philosophy in a very anti-metaphysical or non-metaphysical way but Murdoch didn't follow that route because for her the metaphysical is is always there I mean it's not in something that comes in the form of a system but rather something is talking about metaphysics is talking about our underlying assumptions, uh, conceptions of the world, worldviews, uh, what, what makes sense, what we take for granted, what we question, what we don't question. Uh, so the very sort of what, what seems to be what our understanding of the world rests upon. Uh, and much of that is, is of a kind that's very hard to pin down. Uh, and then metaphysics or metaphysical work is, is a kind of work on that, those uh, assumptions. Um, and, um, and I think for her, it's very, it was very essential that you can't really do moral philosophy without engaging your metaphysics in, in, in that way or engaging the cultural surroundings um, where certain things seem obvious or unquestionable or highly questionable or inexplicable, etc. And we see these sort of struggle with, with um, taking for granted assumptions uh, in, in um, 20th century moral philosophy. That was a central concern for her early philosophy, where she was sort of going against certain emphases on the individual, on, on morality as a matter of action, etc. But, but what she was also doing, I think, is, is was trying to show that, okay, so philosophers make these assumptions about what moral life is like, but okay, look at our moral lives. We are not making those same assumptions in our actions, in our everyday lives. So, so we live with this kind of double consciousness where we, on the one hand, adopt certain aspects of the modern action-oriented individualist conception of morality and, and, and nonetheless live in a in a much more complex present of moral understandings. And I think that comes out very nicely in Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. I think sort of she really dives deep into the complexities of, of an intellectual present, a moral present, uh, and a spiritual present, where, where we, we live in a time um, where, where certain things appear to us as problems or as, as forgivings, and, and we then we we need to, to, to understand that present in order to, to make do things, uh, both to do things in our lives, but also to do things in philosophy. Um, and, and this is, of, of course, like it's a, it's a humongous task. It's, it's, it's massive. And, and there wasn't really much in, in the regions of, of philosopher where she was most active in her 
um, most active academic years, it, there wasn't much of an example of how to do this kind of work. So it's, and, and she, I th think she's, she was also rather expansive writer in a way. So, so, so you get this mass of considerations about, about the times um, and, and the place uh, of, of morality uh, in them. And of course, one of the big questions for, for anyone thinking about, like in this cultural respect, thinking about these things in the, uh, in the 20th century, late 20th century is a question of religion. Uh, because, and, and un, unlike, in contrast to many of her contemporary moral philosophers, she, she didn't think that we can just um, place the question of religion outside moral philosophy. Uh, she thought that well, the question of religion, the question of spirituality, uh, the question of the changes we have experienced culturally in these respects over centuries, but, but especially in the past century, uh, are not something that we can disregard when thinking about morality. So that is something to be taken into account. And she also finds in the uh, in our sort of religious heritage a lot of value, uh, a kind of a resource for both thinking about relations between people, thinking about personhood, and thinking about um, stri the strivings of moral life. Um, but there was also, of course, this problem because she shared with many of her contemporaries this idea that we are moving towards a secular age, that we are moving towards uh, an age where religion will definitely not be part of the taken for granted background, where it, it will not be part of our sort of given metaphysics. <laughs> And, uh, and, and that was a problem for her. So, so it's, it's, it, we would see in metaphysics as applied to morals, a kind of rescue operation, uh, an attempt to, to, to bring back uh, to a secular or more or less secular or increasingly secular context aspects of um, uh, what was good or useful or, or nourishing in, in the Christian traditions uh, that that she feels that we have um, left behind uh, in a way. Now, this is, of course, something that contemporary scholars would question. Many, many few people believe in this secular uh, modernity. Uh, today, I think it's more, more common to think about modernity as consisting of plural uh, places, more or less religious, more or less secular. Um, and, and if we look at the global context, um, the disappearance of religion hasn't, uh, it hasn't moved, moved the way that um, Murdoch was, was thinking about. But this is also, I mean, um, so placing, thinking about the present, our current present, um, with, with Murdoch's questions in mind, I think is a very, very useful, useful thing to do. So even if, if though the development perhaps wasn't what she expected, um, I think we are well, it very well, I mean, I think she's very helpful in this respect. And then the question of metaphysics. So, so that much of the metaphysics and metaphysics as a kind of morals is descriptive metaphysics. It's an engagement with different philosophers, different people's uh, ways of taking things for granted, of, of, of taken for granted background assumptions, etc., and and how those are at play in different philosophers' work. Um, but there's also something of a more constructive metaphysical effort, and, and this we see if, uh, perhaps throughout her work, that there is an, 
uh, there is an, she has a positive relation to this inspirational metaphysical images uh, and the idea of metaphysics as very pictorial, also images of, um, for instance, the Plato Platonic ascendance from the cave, but also other um, uh, or, or can, pictures like this, the idea of movement towards the good, striving and ascendance towards the good. Are, are in a way fundamental metaphysical pictures that provide us with something, something, a kind of energy to our moral lives. So, so kind of the meta, this kind of pictorial metaphysical thinking can um, be a kind of antidote to the flatness uh, of much uh, modern moral philosophy. It's, you know, this idea of, 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 of moral life is energized by pictures, images, and strivings, and and being. Um, a mobile thing on the whole. So, so these are some some themes that I think are sort of central. But but as we see, this is quite this is quite big things. Mm. Uh, and and um, and of course, she's also engaging in many more local local um, discussions. Yeah, I think one of the things that always strikes me, Nora. Thank you for 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 go going through that so so clearly, is that she's not just dealing with what we might term. The moderns and modern philosophy from the, the the 17th century onward. She's going right the way back in time and drawing on all sorts of um, early modern, um, but also pre-Renaissance thinkers as well. Um, she's really trying to bring together this whole kind of the history of Western thought to produce a kind of a cohesive um, understanding of where we are at the end of the 20th century and and consider the consideration of metaphysics. It's um, it, it, I think because of that, it can be quite off-putting to the, the general reader trying to, to handle. Just on the first page, we've got Hume, we've got Kant, we've got questions about classifications and orders of merit. And then we go on to thinking about um, no mentions of Aquinas in there, Plato and, and so on. Do you think, I guess it's a follow-up question to you, do you, do you think that that is perhaps a, a, one of the great benefits of the work, but also something that maybe holds it back for readers, that there are just so many personalities involved in her thinking? I think that makes it um, more difficult to approach. And I think one sort of a good key to approaching it, I, I think could be to, to uh, take her as, as I mean, it, she trying, I, said, I suppose she's also trying to be informative. She's trying to sort of offer these philosophers up for us uh, as, as materials to think with. And they also, of course, they are in a way for her, they are just part of what she knows. So, so she talks about them. But I think one way of thinking about what she's doing, which might make it easier to engage, is that she's really talking about not just sort of the present um, created by um, 2000 years of philosophy, but very much the present, present created by us here and now. So it's, and it's not just the present of, of intellectual life, the present of philosophy, but very much. Um, the present of ordinary people doing ordinary things in, in, in contemporary contexts. So it's, it's a, in a way, it's much easier, I think, to engage with her if we think about her as somebody thinking about um, the place we, like where we live. I think there's a very nice uh, quotation in the, from the, or a very nice passage from Nation in the Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, which, which I think I've quoted actually several times, but um, it's, it's, uh, I can read it up here. She writes that we live in the present, this strange, familiar, yet mysterious continuum, which is so difficult to describe. This is what is nearest, and it matters what kind of place it is. 
And I think that's a kind of key for reading, reading. I mean, how you can sort of navigate um, the mass of philosophers is that this kind of concern and care for the present because it matters what kind of way it is. Um, sure. No, I agree with you there that how each of them have kind of added to our our knowledge and how we can kind of I, I guess she wants to consider it in, in in part in thinking about the present and whether we can create some sort of synthesis and some kind of ending to uh, where we might perceive philosophy from in, in the late 90s. Um, but um, Gillian, could I could I come to you now? Because it'd be really handy, I think, for our listeners to think about the structure and the style of the work and how Murdoch kind of puts it together. Obviously, Francis has told us a little bit about the background, but the actual the work itself. Could you uh, talk us through that? Yes, well, um, you know, it's it's not a it's not a, a, a sort of shapely work in a way. It's 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 a lot more accumulative, you might say. Um, it she does she it's, uh, and I think Francis might have said this at some stage that you're really seeing her working through these problems and you're working through them with her. It's not that she knows what she thinks and she's writing that down. The, for her, the writing um, is part of the, is, is the thinking. Um, so she's not really, uh, she sort of does, she doesn't have the usual conventions like, um, you know, introductions, conclusions, um, topic sentences, you know, the sort of things that, 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 uh, that uh, academic editors are always nagging me about, you know, where's your topic sentence at the beginning of each paragraph? <laughs> uh, you know, Iris, Iris Murdoch didn't, didn't worry about that. Um, and that, I mean, they're not completely absent, but they're not, they're not at the forefront. Um, it's a sort of calm and undramatic style, although it's, it's very, I, I find it very engaging actually, but it, but it does take a little while to get used to it. And to understand what she's doing and what it is, um, I think, you know, if you're coming, if you're coming to the book as a as a work of, of philosophy, you might you might be puzzled by it because you know it doesn't have perhaps that 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 usual structure. Although philosophers write in all sorts of different ways, don't they? They they have all sorts of approaches, um, but. Um, but I wouldn't say that she's writing for readability in MGM the way the way that she obviously is with her novels. Um, but but once you once you start reading and reading with her, um, not trying to bring arguments against her, but or you know, well, discuss. It's like a discussion. It's it's sort of. I mean, I've got my notes here, and I keep uh, the notes that I took when I read. Um, read it again for the for you know four or five years ago um and then I, I, I find these you know the things I picked out were because I'm I'm my field is literature I kept on picking out these these wonderful turns of phrase um and I also had questions for her she what does she mean by this you know um well I I'm you know I can I can look into it and I can reread it and but you know I can never really know for sure um, and, um, you know, one of the things that, that attracts me so much is, is her discussion of things like 
the things like the, the role of metaphor in philosophy. Um, she, uh, you know, her, her, her um, epigraph is from Paul Valéry, the French poet, and it's, um, you know, uh, um, um, it's, let me read it. Um, uh, a, a difficulty is a light, an, a, a, an insurmountable difficulty is a sun. Um, so, um, so that's uh, you know a sun, S-U-N. Um, so, so she 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 has this metaphor, and she refers refers back to this metaphor a few times as well. So, this metaphor is kind of the the um, the whole, you know, underlying the whole the whole of this book, um, and she talk and she does talk about the way other philosophers use metaphor too. Um, and and one of the things that that really struck me when I was rereading it was the the way that her um, her characters, her, her well her <laughs> the philosophers in MGM are her characters, and she describes them, you know, in delightful, delightful ways. I mean, she, she's this, this wonderful way she describes Schopenhauer in particular. I mean, that my chapter on um, Schopenhauer um, in this, in, in the readers, the reading, re reading um, MGM book, um, you know, she talks about his irresistible empiricist gaiety and how he represents, Schopenhauer represents what Wittgenstein shudders from, an insatiable, omnivorous, muddled, cheerful, often casual volubility. Um, and these wonderful, you know, Murdochian strings of, of adjectives, which we love so much in her novels, you know, they're there, um, especially when she's talking about particular philosophers, and Wittgenstein is one of them, and, and, um, and Schopenhauer is another one that, that she seems to really relate to in a, in a kind of almost like a, a person that she knows. I mean, she did know Wittgenstein, of course. She, she, um, and and she, she, said to, um, uh, she said to Brian Medlin, um, you know, she, she, and, she and Brian Medlin, who was Marxist, obviously disagreed about a lot of, in philosophy and quite enjoyed doing that. And, um, uh, but he, fa he found MGM a marvelously exciting book. Um, but, um, but she said, um, you know, he said uh, he would like to um, read, read, her, read Wittgenstein like as poetry. And she said, well, that would annoy him very much. <laughs> So you know, it's this sort of um, this sort of comradeship with the with the philosophers that she really relates to that that, that I find really charming. And, and Plato is, of course, the one of those, you know, the one that is at the basis of all of her of everything. I think for her, um, I mean, um, you know, that's I think that's I think well known. But she builds on Plato. Obviously, Plato's not be all and end all. Thanks, Gillian. Um, I'm, I'm interested in what you say about um, this idea of the characterization of philosophers and how we can engage with them on a human level. I was just 
looking at my own car as you were speaking I, the uh, a review of of the work from 1992 fell out of my own copy actually that I hadn't seen in ages <laughs> um it was it, this is a review from the daily mail which is amazing so i don't think the daily mail would would review metaphysics the guide to morals if it came out today but it was really it's really interesting um and this is this is peter mullen um in the daily mail um in 1992 and uh, he, he talks about her 24 novels and she, and he says that these, this this work does the same this this is practices what she preaches she finds moral truth in art and he goes on to say that this work outshines them all. It is lively, witty and spellbinding, written by a sleuth on the trail of the meaning of life. I thought that's a beautiful way, a beautiful way of putting it. Um, okay, he just said it all then. Yeah, a, a place before. permeated, <laughs> a place permeated by presence and that we need in a word to have a sense and to look at life's holiness. And I think that's a fascinating thing to consider that this is perhaps her most deeply engaged work with religion as well and of course as we know we're not, not talking about them today but the novels do become more deeply and more rigorously engaged with not just what we might call uh, monotheistic religion but a, a, the, the but, but pantheism as well um, so there are some really interesting connections I think in the novels in the mm. 80s and 90s with with MGM but one thing I wanted mm. to ask um, ask you all actually is what you thought about the development of this work uh, from the earlier work uh, most obviously, I guess, sovereignty of the sovereignty of good collection, but perhaps also the uh, the the fire in the sun, as well. Are you seeing direct connections with the ideas? Is she develop developing them? Is she also considering how she might add on to them in this work, or is it or is it just a much wider canvas that she's painting? It's a really tricky one because it's you said it's just a broader canvas, but in a way, I think the broader canvas is 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 the is the enlargement because it, it turns it turns out very differently when you look at I, I mean of course she has this continuous engagement in a way with um, with the relationship between moral philosophy and, and and moral life and sort of the dissonance between moral philosophy and moral life and how moral philosophy is very inadequate in its 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 task because it doesn't really understand anything about life hence it doesn't understand very much about um moral life either but um but then she there is so there is this attempt at doing like cultural philosophy or engaging cultural issues or or like contemporary topics from the very early writings on i mean you see her engage i think her engagement with existentialism is 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 a, is a theme of this kind it's clear that she, there she sees that this is also these are philosophers and novelists so in a way very similar to what she is, is, is becoming. Um, they are engaged with topics that seem, seem very important in the post-war war era that seem to be, they seem to be sort of doing something really vital. Um, and, and, and she's first, she's sort of very sort of warmly engaged with, with, with them. And then she becomes more wary because she sees similarities, strong similarities between sort of action-oriented individualist perspectives very familiar to her from her from her um, from her contemporary English uh, philosophy so there's a kind of engagement with culture there but then it, when it becomes on the scale of, of the met of metaphysics as a guide to morals uh, it changes because the engagement with culture becomes much more multifaceted and much broader and then there are also new topics that I think 
that, uh, that should be seen as either new or given a new direction, such as the role of politics, which comes up in the methods of practical morals, I think in a new way when she introduces the notion of axiom. Um, and, and you also see her coming out as, as a liberal thinker in, in a way, a kind of her concern for the individual, um, the individual person and for singularity and particularity, I think is, 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 is turned into a form of defense of liberalism in, in a time where, where, where actually quite different currents are, are, are um, stuck. So, so, and but I think there are quite interesting, interesting things probably to be said about her liberalism in right morals, and I think that has been seen very much and uh, looked into. Mm. And she puts <laughs> such a strong emphasis, doesn't she, on individual consciousness as well, and thinking about uh, well, she's already dealt with it, I guess, in sovereignty of good, this, this, the, the question about egoism, but here she's again, I think, being more expansive about it and considering how we can deal with it. It's almost as if she's giving us kind of active avenues in which we can go down to kind of reduce our ego and, and make ourselves more aware, um, aware of life and, of course, aware of others as well. And of course, she connects that question of morality with also moving, moving beyond, I guess, regular topics of philosophy that we might generally consider in works of this, this period about mysticism and spirituality that you probably wouldn't find in other writers. Um, Francis, do you want to say a little bit about it? I wanted that? to say that actually, Miles, because while I was talking, and I agreed with all she said, um, it occurred to me that in the Solitary Good, when she's a much younger writer and much more, as Gillian's also said earlier, sort of giving topic sentences and trying to have a, a structured book to, to offer. Um, and I think it's a brilliant book, I'm not saying anything against it, but she very firmly puts God to one side. It is unbelievable now, we are past that stage, we can no longer possibly believe in God, and therefore we'll replace him with good. And it's just a sort of absolute statement, and it brooks no argument and everything. I'm metaphysics as a guide to morals, much, much older, sadder, having lost people, having experienced more things, having read a lot of things, um, not necessarily philosophy, and met people and had conversations with them and traveled a great deal in India and places, I think she has become less certain. She still can't give any kind of metaphysics to the idea of a god in terms of dogmatics, in terms of traditional theology. And yet this sense that there is something spiritual, there is something mystical, something transcendent, something holy. But what is it? She says the dream that does not cease to haunt us. And that comes back into this work, whereas in the earlier works, I feel you know, God has been cleared firmly out of the picture, and now we'll talk about things. I mean, is there, there's something too about her, the, 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 her co constant throughout this book, there's a constant sort of debate going on about, about the role of art in philosophy and, and their relationship. Um, you know, she, she she says literature could be said to be a sort of disciplined technique for arousing certain emotions. Um, and, uh, you know, these they sort of, uh, and, and, and then in, in 1969, she said to Philip Foot that, that she was a philosophical poet. And then she said, in fact, I only decided it as I spoke those words to her. So was she a philosophical poet? Uh, was she a poetical philo philosopher? Um, you know, I, I find all this quite, quite, quite fun to think about. Um, 
And I think that that could be, I, I wouldn't mind a podcast debating that one day, Miles. If, if <laughs> I'll put it on the list. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the, but of course, while she was writing these, this book, which really took her 10 years, I mean, she, the Gifford lectures were 1982. The, 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 the book came out, MGM came out in 92. So while she was writing that, she, she was, she, the four novels she was writing uh, were The Philosopher's Pupil, in which an eminent philosopher faces an ultimate and ultimately despairs of the enormity of the philosopher's task. The Good Apprentice, which involves two young men trying to find the path to good, one through atonement and the other through willful self-abnegation. The Book and the Brotherhood, in which one big book of philosophy is written and, and another about to be embarked on. And The Message to the Planet, about a depleted sage unable to provide the enlightenment his eager disciples so desperately seek. So um, every one of those books uh, has dramatised, explicitly dramatises things that she talks about in, in, the, um, in Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. Now, I, I don't want to read her philosophy through her novels. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of opposed, well, you know, I don't, I don't, I try not to do that myself, but I, I think that there is a, there's certainly a, um, you know, you can't really cut her life in half and 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 not, you know, she wanted she she kind of always was saying that she wanted to d divide the. I'm not a philosophical novelist. She or she would say, uh, you know, there's there's not philosophy in my. Well, if there is philosophy in my novels, well, you know, you should just treat it like you know any other subject. But um, but it's it, it's. I don't think we can take her on trust in that case, um, but. There's a lot. It's a lot more complicated. You can't just say, "Oh well, she in in um, in uh, you know the good apprentice such and such happens, and this character is a good character, so therefore that's what she thought." You know, it, it, her her characterizations and her her narrative is just too too subtle to to, to draw out you know, content. Uh, sort of distill content from simply it's much more um, as she says a, a, a discipline for a disciplined technique for um, for arousing certain emotions and then she goes on to say that is certainly why one of the reasons why one enjoys it and one of the reasons why it's good for us when it is good and bad for us when it's bad um, so you know it's sort of dangerous it's a dangerous game actually um, this writing business, <laughs> especially if people read you. <laughs> I think um, you're right, Gillian, you can't read the philosophy through the novels. And for example, the book that David Crimmond writes in the book of the Brotherhood is obviously nothing like Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. It's clear that it's yeah. um, quite a different kind of a book with a different thrust and trajectory. And yet, yeah. When he says in that, you've got to take in everything. You can't leave anything out. And the bits that don't fit, you can't just leave them on one side. You've got to make it work. I get the sense, again, of the way she was trying to make all parts of human experience fit together. And, and the strain of thinking that he goes through, you can feel that with her as well. 
thinking about the, the relationship between her novelistic characters and her, her own thinking, because we all encounter a lot of what we think is reminds us of her thinking in the novels. And, but, but mostly they are, things are being said by characters who might be very compromised in different ways or in very compromised situations, when they're drinking, for instance, or, or, or doing other stuff or, or rebuking someone or, or, or just um, engaging in, in a social situation, which is not the same as writing a philosophical dissertation or, a, or books. So, so, so you always need to to look at the, the what they're saying in the context and what kind and, and often to I mean they say philosophical things to a comical effect, and 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 this as is quite I think she must have had quite a lot of fun doing that, especially when the ideas that you're you're uh, reading are, are somehow very close to her own thinking or, or sort of so so there can even be this kind of parody parody versions of, of, of her own thinking. And, and, uh, and of course, then there's a deeper question of, of, of how you can still um, read something about her own relation to those ideas from, from those novels. But I, I think there's also just a lot of good fun in her way of putting uh, philosophy into, into the novels. I suppose one thing that we might want to consider in relationship to um, the early philosophical work as well and how MGM is a kind of development from it. Is this a question of duty that, that Murdoch wants to deal with here? Um, obviously, in, in Sovereignty of Good, we've got the question of attention. And as Francis was pointing out, we're, we're kind of putting questions of theology to one side. But here we're bringing back ideas of um, questions of theology into a much stronger position, I think. And also we're bringing in a kind of the, the questioning of Kant's notion of duty and how and Murdoch's conception of duty perhaps differs a little bit from Kant's. But there are there's a strong suggestion, I think, in MGM that duty is is really important to the moral life. And I wonder what if if any of you have any thoughts about why that is? Why why does she bring this back in, in such a strong way? Can I have a go on that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's, it, it comes it comes very sort of it becomes a very strong theme towards the end. I mean, it is is present in the book in places, but it and I think it has to do with the prominence of the theme of errors, this kind of striving towards the good, uh, which is which is her, in a way her main moral philosophical contribution. That she wants very clearly to 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 show that she's not suggesting this as a um, like a big philosophical theory about morality, but rather it's an, the, the, the thinking about the human striving towards the good, uh, like using Plato's thinking about uh, ascendance from the cave and this, this idea of errors and kind of striving is, 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 a, is, is an exploration of one dimension of the moral life, which should not be seen as uh, in, in contrast to or shouldering out other kinds of concerns, such as the concerns that she labels uh, duty or the kinds of considerations that she collects under what she calls axioms, which are the kind of duties or concepts of the political uh, sphere. So, so I think I think this sort of one part of why she returns to duties in such a strong way is to show that really morality is a very complex thing and, and duties certainly have a place in it that she's not out, you know, she's not, in the business of, of uh, replacing those concerns, but rather painting a, a, a different kind of picture and, and also sort of emphasizing the irreducibility of different conceptual 
um, frameworks uh, in morality. Thank you. Yes, I think that's it, it's worth seeing. You know, we although we've talked of talked about how the the work is quite disparate in certain regards. There are kind of threads that run all the way through, which makes it a fascinating work. And as as, as you're saying, we you know when we end up with chapter 17 on axioms, duties, and eros, and how we kind of consider all those in in tandem and hold them together in our minds is a fascinating one. And then of course we move on to void and consider you know the the um, moments of movement into the in, into into emptiness which i think is a is a fascinating a fascinating way to to bring bring the, the bring the work almost together if you like um now when this book came when this book came out in 1992 clearly um it was quite a different work of philosophy than was being published at the point at this point in time very much in the uh, in you know uh, considerations of the postmodern for example which Murdoch is uh, deals with in in certain regards here, both with mentions of uh, Derrida and, um, and and Heidegger as well. How was the book received? What did people make of it? And how should we think about it now? I think probably as we're coming towards the end of the podcast, we ought to think about that. Um, and then it'll obviously in the uh, in the other episodes to come, we can also consider uh, reception. But I wonder um, how might how was it approached in 1992 when it was released? I think when it came out, there was a lot of bafflement, and there are a few people who stand out as having appreciated immediately what Murdoch was doing here. And they were people who'd engaged with her work for a long time and knew her work very well, such as Stephen Mulhall and Maria Antonazio. And they've both written very illuminatingly, not only about what Murdoch is doing in this book, but how she's doing it. And this rolling movement of metaphysics as a guide to morals that is not, as Gillian said, in sort of tidily planned sections, you know, chapter headings that lead from one to the other in the way that you're supposed to write today, but has this musing quality. And I think it was quite deliberate in a way because Murdoch thought that thinking is quite messy. We do find it quite difficult. We don't think in tidy ways. It's all a jumble in our minds. And to tidy it up too much is to falsify the experience altogether. And I think people like Mulhall and Antonazio saw this and wrote wonderfully about um, what she was doing. I found them very helpful to my own understanding at the beginning. But a lot of people, I have to confess, were just baffled. They'd no idea what she was talking about. And Isaiah Berlin had said something very rude about her untidy mind earlier as well. And a lot of people just thought, you know, she's, she's not very good at this. It's not good philosophy. <laughs> Which, is a, as Nora's been saying, it's a completely different kind of philosophy, different approach to philosophy from many people's. So how should we read it now? 30 years on, and for, of course, 40 years on from the Gifford Lectures, does it speak to us very differently in 2022 than it, than it did back in 1992? I, I think it does, because we've moved on. Um, you know, in 1992, uh, she was a, 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 a sort of reigning queen of the novel, um, perhaps, had written some couple of baffling sort of novels that people didn't couldn't really understand so I think you know maybe there was a sort of oh well you know this is just too much um and uh but I think now um we can come at it with a a, a broader appreciation of who she, who she was where she was coming from um the whole oeuvre you know from from Sartre romantic rationalists through to 
you know, to um, Jackson's Dilemma, the, the whole amazing um, body of work that she, that she produced. Um, and the, the importance of, of approaching it as on its own terms, I think, and, and you know, I think we, uh, you know, for, for any writer of great stature, you do that. You 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 don't expect because a lot of a lot of this expectation is well, a, philo a book of philosophy looks like this. It's it's organized in this way, or an academic book, or whatever. But um, for for her, she can break the rules because she's who she was. Um, and you know, we find this with with great you know great writers of all kinds. You know they. They, they can break the rules and, and we can still pay attention. Um, and we all think, well, why can't I break the rules, you know, um, you know, in my little study in the other end of the world and be, be taken notice of? Well, she's earned it, you know, she's earned it through her career. Um, and, uh, and now there's so much, there's such richness in this book. Um, there are, you know, there's, there's, there's humour, there's, there's, um, you know, wonderful sort of wisdom and, and uh, but nothing dogmatic really. And that's what I think it can teach us is, is just the, the, the process of just li listening along and, and working through these, all these, all these issues and problems and thoughts and, um, you know, her, her incredible erudition um, and trying to, trying to put it all together and make sense of it and not leave anything out, yeah. <laughs> Gillian's so right about we read it differently now in the context of murder, but also I think um, the world has changed. In 89, between the writing of the Gifford Lectures and the coming out of Metaphysics' Guide to Morals, the Berlin War came down. Mm. And towards the end of the 20th century, I think we were hopeful that we might actually have learned something from history, which of course we haven't. And that actually we might be going to live differently and not see the horrors of the 20th century be repeated. I mean, she was so aware of living in the after Hitler age and that those events were the shaping of their world and their consciousness. She and Philippa Foote and everybody say a lot about that and the men too. Um, but now we've reached this century for a decade or so might have been going to be all right. We've since had Brexit, Trump, Covid, Ukraine, you know, we can see the world is as terrible as it ever was, and we haven't time to go into it, sadly, but I think her comments on the void and on the fact that this whole struggling for being good and this Eros um, dynamic and everything can fall apart when life just becomes intolerable, which for no fault of their own, it does for so many people in so many situations. And she's it's one of the pieces that doesn't fit any kind of tidy system. And she looks deeply and hard at what do we do with the terrible experiences of affliction and remorse and suffering and, and the bravery of people who don't avoid that for what they believe to be right. It's, it's, it is an extraordinary um, challenge, I think, to to where we are now. Well, we're definitely going to come back to questions of um, of, of void, and um, of course, the the, the final um, chapters of, of metaphysics um, in a later podcast. But thank you for for highlighting those. We, we, that, that's definitely something I'd I'd like to cover. Nora, as a uh, practicing practicing philosopher, um, where does this work fit in with your own, and how do you see it interacting with other works in the twentieth century? If that's not too big a question. 
Yeah, I, it, it seems to me that um, when I came to this work in my dissertation work in, in, in the early uh, earlier part of, of this century, um, uh, I it, it seemed more like it seemed stranger and it seemed her way of engaging moral philosophy seemed more awkward in the context of of what was then taken to be a contemporary moral philosophy. I think that's changing because I think an increasing number of philosophers are also realizing that they need to engage their times. They need to engage uh, moral life as it's lived by other people. And I think that impulse comes partly from a push toward more interdisciplinary work. Uh, but also I think from, this is, this is my, inappropriate to say but I think there's also a more like a feminine touch to her I mean this is this kind of um the, the fact that there are more women <laughs> engaging uh philosophy in that way um and and making this sort of strong connection between between moral life as they see it the moral experiences they encounter um and and, and bringing it into moral philosophy uh this is of course speculative and and, and it might be inappropriate but I think there's a kind of gender aspect to that as well and and I think for philosophers who look at philosophy in that way it's, it's very easy to see a kindred spirit in, in Murdoch even if they end up now writing more um, normal research papers or books um, that the, the emphasis on, on the moral life and its complexities it, it very feels like something very 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 um, um, fresh for the present mm. and I, I suppose there's just so much richness in there that it, it takes you in so many different directions that perhaps in 1992 it was diff difficult to kind of consider it as a coherent whole whereas now we're seeing it as a multifaceted work that deals with so much not just in philosophy but in so many other as you say an interdisciplinary work that, that deals with so many other subjects as well uh, thank you all so much. I mean, obviously, all three of you are represented, and two of you, of course, are the co-editors of Reading Iris Murdoch's Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals that came out with Palgrave in 2019. I shall put a link to that uh, on the podcast itself, so those people who haven't got it yet and who want to um, can, can pick it up. It's certainly a, a fascinating work. Um, I would also say that if you've read Sovereignty of Goods and enjoyed that, and obviously we ha have already produced a podcast on that a couple of years ago, um, then do please uh, have a go at Metaphysics of Guide to Morals. As Francis said, although it is um, a, a difficult one in some regards, if you do um, have a go and, and see what you enjoy from it and can pick out of it, I think that's probably the one of the best places to start. And then you can have a look at um, Nora and Gillian's edited collection to help you through. Uh, this, uh, this series will continue. Uh, there'll be, as I said at the, the beginning, there'll be three more podcasts uh, dealing with this, uh, this wonderful work. Um, through uh, through 2022 as we try and uh, delve a little bit deeper and, and to see um, the, the production and the process and the working through of, of Murdoch's ideas in Metaphysics of Guide to Morals. So my thanks very much to, to Gillian, to Nora and to Francis and my thanks to you all for listening.